Welcome to A Better Way with Real Estate, a podcast series hosted by real estate investor, Brian O'Neill. During each episode, we'll give practical advice for individuals and families navigating the many hurdles in the home buying and selling process. There is a better way with real estate that supports the goals and needs of your family, and we're here to help. Listen along as we help families like yours, one home at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition to A Better Way with Real Estate. I'm your host, Brian O'Neill, and today we have a very special guest that we're going to be talking to. Uh, His name is Nick Prefontaine. Uh, He's a good friend of mine, and he's going to add a tremendous amount of value and insight today, and I'm super excited that he's going to be on the show. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Nick, and then I'm going to ask him to expand. Uh, He's got a great story. And in, actually, in 2003, Nick was in a snowboarding accident that left him in a coma for over three weeks. The doctors told his parents that he probably wouldn't walk, talk, or eat on his own again. Less than three months later, he was running, not walking, running at a Franciscan Children's Hospital. Now Nick speaks to groups that benefit from his message of overcoming adversity. Nick is also... Uh, a partner and runs the day-to-day operations of Pre-Property Solutions uh, out of Rhode Island, which is a company that uh, buys homes on terms and they and they sell them on a rent-to-own basis. We're going to have Nick talk in depth about that, how he helps people get to the finish line and get their own get their own loan. He is also the host of not just a transaction podcast with his brother-in-law Zachary Beach. I've had the pleasure of being on. It's a must-follow. Uh, tremendous insight. I would recommend everyone download. So Nick, with that as a backdrop, welcome to the to the show, my friend. Well, Brian, you're going to be boosting our numbers just by saying that endorsement and having your listeners go check that out. So that's awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah, I encourage, I encourage each and every one of the listeners to check that out as well. A lot of good information there. Definitely, definitely. And as I mentioned in the in the intro there, I, I'd, I'd love for you to expand a little bit more on your story. I mean, I just touched on it a little bit, but I, I just really, I love your story and just the adversity piece and, you know, how you've really, how that's carried you and, and into where you are now, you know, fast forward, uh, whatever it is, a decade later when you started doing this uh, and, and how you're able to, to, to help people today overcome their own adversity. Sure. So it was, I, I grew up, uh, so a little bit of a background for the listeners. I grew up in a family real estate business. So when I was little, little back, uh, back when I was little before, prior to my accident, my dad was always in real estate. He was a builder for as long as I can remember when I was a toddler and then a real estate agent and an investor and he transitioned back and forth over doing doing each one um, kind of at the same time or or doing each one uh, committing to each one of those. So I grew up. It was that's how I grew up. All I could think of everywhere I looked was real estate. Mm. Now, I I used to snowboard, so I was a part of my school ski club. Every Wednesday, we would go to Wachusa Mountain during during the winter and on that particular day on this particular day february 5th 2003 we got dismissed a little bit early uh than the rest of the kids which is always exciting for us i was 14 years old very excited 
And my friends and I have brought our gear, our snowboarding gear onto the bus so as not to miss a precious moment once we got to the mountain. In getting ready, I noticed that I forgot one thing that I usually I didn't wear all the time, but I would bring it whenever we went to ski club because it was a it was a step up. It was a bigger mountain. Mm-hmm. And that's my helmet. I really, Brian, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think that anything would happen because nothing ever did happen. So I would be OK. So we get to the mountain and because we already headed right for the top on the way to the top. My friends and I noticed that it was very icy because it had been raining. People were wiping out everywhere. Needless to say, it wasn't my first time on a snowboard. I I knew what I was doing on a snowboard. So got to the top, buckled in. Everyone was talking about you would be crazy to hit that jump, that that big jump under these conditions. And I took then as I take everything nowadays, any slide or anything like that as a challenge. So I headed towards the biggest jump with all my speed. Going up to the edge, I caught the edge of my snowboard, which threw me off balance. That was the last thing that I remember, Brian. And I was later told that I went off that jump and that I wasn't wearing a helmet in the air. Listeners can only imagine this, but for those of you watching this in the air, I rotated all the way, basically 360 degrees upside down or 180 degrees upside down and landed right on my head. And I continued to hit my head after I made that initial impact. Now, there were really three things that I can point to from that experience that you know brought me to where I am today and gave me the opportunity to live. That was, although I didn't have a helmet, I had these very thick goggles. They were called, they're called spies. For those of you that are skiers and snowboarders, you know that they have a lot of padding in them. So even though I didn't have a helmet, that padding of those goggles in part saved me. And then with each impact, I was told from people who saw the accident with each impact, those goggles would move to brace the to brace my fall every time because I didn't just hit it once. I hit it multiple times. I, I kept rolling. Second thing was it was too windy to life flight me that particular day to UMass. So they had to have paramedics rush to the hospital, um, not the hospital, but take me to the hospital to rush me to the hospital. Now, there's only two paramedics on the staff that can intubate right on the spot. And and for those of your listeners that don't know, intubate, all that means is uh, insert a breathing tube down the throat and allow me allow me the opportunity to breathe. There was only two out of six other paramedics that could do that procedure. One of them, uh, thank God, was working that day. Then I got I got to the hospital And at the very beginning, it was just my parents that were allowed in my hospital room. Mm. The doc, the doctors, the doctors wanted to share the news with them of how and at the beginning it was worse and worse and worse how I was progressing. And I spoke about this on the smart real estate coach uh, podcast that I was on last week that. It was amazing the foresight that my parents had because whenever the doctors came in 
to say how how much worse and how much worse and, and how much worse it was each time they stopped them and said, no, no, not here, not in front of him. Because they knew, even though I was in a coma, I was still taking information in. I was still absorbing that information. So they asked the doctors to go outside in the hallway outside my room to tell me the news. So those are really three things that I can point to initially that in part helped to save my life. After I was stabilized a month, so I was in a coma for three weeks, about a month of, or a month of which I don't remember. I, I have no recollection of whatsoever. Then I was transported to Franciscan Children's Hospital in Boston, and that's where I began my journey to learn how to walk, talk, and eat again. Now, at least initially, they were long, they were long days for me. So I would just, just to give a little peek into, for the listeners, a peek into how you know, a typical day was for me, I would get up, I would need, a, I would need help from an occupational therapist to help me get ready in the morning to shower. Because I always, I always pause on this because a lot of people don't think of the fact that how humbling it is to have someone there basically at your most uh, vulnerable to teach you how to shower again. Now, I was 14 years old, king of the world, as, as I'm sure you can imagine, 14 years old. So I had to have someone teach me how to shower again. So that would that was in the morning. Then I would head to I would have breakfast and all that jazz. Then I would head to uh, physical, occupational, and speech therapy. I would stop for lunch. I would have an hour break for lunch, and then at one of those at one of those lunch sessions, I remember very early on in my recovery, I was in a wheelchair. I remember this specific moment. At first, it started that I would sit up in bed for minutes at a time with three nurses supporting me, and even then I would be thoroughly exhausted. Then it went to a fully supported wheelchair all the way at my neck, and then it went to a regular wheelchair with no support. Mm. I remember at this point in the story that I'm telling you, at one of my lunches, I was in a regular wheelchair, and I looked over, I looked over at my mom, who was with me every day. There was never a family member who wasn't there with me. I always had someone, whether it was my mom or her parents during the day or my dad and his family or brothers or my grandparents at night. So I looked over at my mom at one of those lunch breaks and I said, I just, I guess I was having trouble just appraising my situation and like where I was and I just stopped and looked down and I, I looked over her and I'm like, am I, am I ever going to be able to walk again? And she goes, of course you are. What do you think we're doing here? Like you're learning how you're learning how to walk again and do all that stuff. So we can get back. We can get back to normal. We can get back to our lives and everything. So it was this unwavering confidence that my mom had that enabled me to have confidence in this moment of, I guess you could say moment of weakness or just not understanding where I was at. So because she didn't even hesitate one second, like not even a second went by or a quarter of a second. And her confidence in me gave, gave me confidence that I would be able to keep going. So then after lunch, 
I would go, I would head again to physical three sessions, physical, occupational, and speech therapy. So that's double sessions of physical, occupational, and speech therapy. And then at one point or another, I remember coming back to my room and doing weights and extra things because all my therapists knew from the moment that I could communicate that my goal was to run out of the hospital. And I say the moment that I could could communicate, Brian, because at the beginning, it wasn't like I just woke up out of the coma and I was having full conversations. I, I had lost something like, I think it was somewhere in the range of 23 pounds, 23, 25 pounds. So I had to learn and get all those muscles back in my throat. So at the beginning, it was just eye contact, communicating. And then that progressed to a whisper and then louder and louder to today where I got my speaking voice back. And my sister wishes to this day that I was quieter. She says that about um, <laughs> me and my brother-in-law, that, that we're too loud. Yeah. So whenever whenever she says that, I... I actually light up inside. I like it. I like I like for someone to say that. Then three months, less than three months later, I ran out of Franciscan Children's Hospital. The school said to me that, oh, no, take your time, recover, go to therapy over the summer and you can start eighth grade again next year. Well, I didn't want to do that. So I graduated. I, I said, no, I, I want to graduate with my eighth grade class. And then the work wasn't over for me. I had to get tutored all summer long just to be able to go on to the next grade. One of those things that I had to do all summer long was go to another six months of physical, occupational and speech therapy, not as intense as when I was in the hospital, but I had to, I had a couple sessions twice a week of uh, physical, occupational and speech therapy. And um, I'm sorry, I, I've been I've been talking a lot, Brian. Do do you have any questions no, or anything? No, this is no, this. I appreciate you sharing this, and I'm you know listening to this, and I've I've heard you talk about this a couple times, few times, but never in this amount of detail. So I've I've learned some new things about you and and your experience, and um, you know, I didn't know about the three things. I didn't know about the goggles. Uh, I I knew about the helmet. Uh, and I, when you, when I heard you talk about your parents, you know, I, I could totally believe that. Cause I've said, I know your parents and, uh, I know your dad quite well. And, um, I can, I can see that as one of the main reasons why you ran out of that hospital, um, is because you had that support system and, you know, you had also the belief in yourself. I mean, you put in the work. I mean, there people are telling you you're never going to walk again, eat or talk. I mean, it's basically the worst type of situation. And you listened to none of that, which is, you know, super inspiring. And I know that you talk to people on a daily basis that you probably have to have, you know, similar conversations with because, you know, maybe they've been, um, through an experience, again, not a snowboarding accident where they're in a coma, but they've had adverse adversity in their lives. And now you're, you're helping people. You're, I know you're speaking. Um, I know you speak at the hospital. Uh, isn't that true? You, you do, you do go back and speak. I go back. I, I still give, mm -hmm. I, I still give. We, we had, after I, just a quick backstory. Mm -hmm. I, after I got out of the hospital, we started a foundation. Uh, it was called the Prefontaine Foundation. 
And 100% of the proceeds benefited Francisca Children's Hospital. However, so this two years after I got out of the hospital, we were running into a lot of problems where the amount, the fundraising work, like doing the golf, we had a big golf tournament every year, doing that, that was all awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, we loved doing that. However, the as we grew, the administrative duties just became so much so difficult that we said to the hospital, we didn't start this to do all these admin responsibilities. We just did this to give back. Yeah. So the Prefontaine Foundation got absorbed into Franciscan Children's Hospital. And now I still give 10% of whatever I earn uh, to them, as well as do various various events our family holds um a few charity events every year mm. a few years ago it was a, a car show and they gen they donated all the proceeds to the prefontaine fund at franciscan so i encourage all all your listeners to check it out it's uh fr i believe the website is franciscanchildrens.com franciscan children's hospital in boston and if they do decide to give, give uh, right out, if this is simple enough, to Franciscan, but then in the memo line, do the Prefontaine Fund. And then the beauty of that, Brian, is they can't, the, hosp the hospital won't um, spend that money. They legally, they can't spend that money unless they talk to us, unless they, unless we approve it. Mm -hmm. And we don't want our our fundraising efforts to go towards uh, pizza parties at the hospital or you laugh, but that's yeah. what they've contacted asking us if we can help pay for that. So our, our, um, what's called those funds can only go towards things that we approve. And that is improving the environment, improving the, the, um, the whole experience of kids at the hospital. Most recently we did, um, devices, tech devices that, for instance, you wear on your wrist that the occupational therapists are able to use and work with the kids to kind of gamify it and make it more fun for them. So I, I looked at that. I looked at the options and I thought, oh, my gosh, that's I, I wish I had that when I was there. Yeah. So right. that's that's the lens of which we always we always make decisions for that. Now, back that quick side story. <laughs> that quick side story there. Now, I would say so two years after running out of the hospital, as I said, I grew up in a family real estate business, so I was always around it. I started reading and, and uh, just devouring information. And the book that I happened upon was Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kawasaki. And that really got me thinking. And I told my dad, I want to help. I want to, I want to get involved. I want to like, give me, give me things to do. I want to, I want to start helping. So around that time, they were playing with the idea of door knocking on pre foreclosure doors or all pre foreclosure is for those of the listeners who don't know is uh, homeowners that have missed one, two or three, or even this was back in 05, 06. Upwards of 10 to 12 payments on their mortgage, and the bank still hadn't foreclosed on them. So I would get a list and I would drive and knock on their door and give them some information that we could help them out of their unfortunate situation. At this time, I was just trying to arrange a an appointment 
for one of our investors to come down and meet with them to talk about helping out of their unfortunate situation. Now, it didn't occur to me, and this might this might be funny for for those listeners out there, but it didn't occur to me that the highest density of these areas, which is I wanted to get the most amount of reps that I could. I wanted to do the most amount in a day that I could. So I picked the areas in the areas of cities where they were right next door to each other. Didn't really occur to me as 16 years old that these probably aren't the best places to buy property. However, needless to say, I was able to set up several appointments for our investor and we we ended up buying several properties that we had up until a few years ago. So um, it was it was successful um, in that regard. And then shortly, I did that for the rest of my high school career. Then when I got out of high school, when I graduated, I started starting to get my real estate license. And in March of 2008, I got my real estate license as an agent. And I know, calm down, all the all the listeners out there, you, you probably know how good of a time it was to become a realtor in March of 2008. It took me it took me three times to get my license. I didn't pass it on the first time. And I remember two of those three times, there was no one in the in the class taking the exam. I was the only one. So then I became a realtor and was really a full time, full time agent um, selling. I didn't know any better. So all these all these. for lack of a better better term, all these agents moaning about, oh, the market used to be so good and it's so bad. Now, I didn't understand it because that was the market that I knew. So I I just had to do what it took in that time to be successful. And then 2014, 15 rolled around and my dad started getting properties under contract and needing help with getting the marketing out there. And I say it to the state, Brian, I, I was I was hesitant to join him when he asked me. It's like, no, no, no. I got my own thing going on. I'm, you know, I'm a big wig realtor. I, I'm, you know, working with buyers and sellers and I get it all figured out. Thank God he asked me more than once because um, that led to working with all the buyers, not only marketing the property, working with all the buyers, mm-hmm. and out of that, developing a process to put each buyer through so that we can maximize their chances of success. And success is getting their own loan and being successful when they come to the end of their agreements. And that in turn has led me to what I'm doing today with pre property solutions and then with a smart real estate coach as well. That's I help all the associates with that same process. And that that's how we were able to connect, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. And you have definitely helped me and in, in our business here at, at BKW. I mean, you've you've as you're talking about uh helping your dad out, I mean, you've talked to uh, my first few buyers that that we put in homes here in, in Chicago. And, you know, I'll I'll never forget that. I mean, it's, it's a, it's something that, um, you know, isn't easy to do, uh, especially for someone who was new in, in, in real estate and had really didn't have a lot of experience there. So I'm, I'm always grateful that, that you were able to, you know, share your insight and share your expertise at the same time, helping these buyers go from a, from a, from a rental situation to where, uh, maybe they thought that that's where they were going to be forever. You know, they they thought about home ownership. They had a dream of home ownership, but 
maybe really never thought it was a reality for them, whether you know it was a credit situation or they didn't have enough income or they weren't taught. I mean, I, I think that it's one of the reasons we we've started this podcast, Nick, is because we just believe there's a huge education gap in the marketplace, um, especially with with buyers. I mean, I, I had my wife on the show the other day and we were talking about, you know, I, I've purchased, sold, uh, purchased several homes and sold a couple too. And I've made mistakes. You know, I, I, the last home we sold, I made a bunch of errors. And it was really because I wasn't educated. I didn't take the time to educate myself and I trusted the wrong people. You know, I put, I put, uh, uh, I put our finances in other people's hands and I take, we take full ownership of that. But I think what we're trying to do here, and I know, I know you're a believer in this as well as we're trying to educate people and help them get to the finish line, which is to get that bank loan. So, and I know you do that a lot of pre-property solutions and you, you've, you've, you've talked to hundreds of buyers, probably, probably even more than that. It's probably, what do you think it's been? Uh, it's really hard to put a number on it. I mean, I can just, just to give you an idea, we right now we're in the, we're in the process of ramping up. So we're in the process of, of buying a bunch of properties. However, right now I only, there's only one property that, that I have that I have to work with to sell to all of our rental home buyers. And mm-hmm. I, I think at this point, I'm actually glad that there's only one because the amount of with our pricing plan and as, um, you know, as Brian knows, we do, we do a market, we do a marketing plan for the, for the particular property and everyone's different depending on the, the underlying payment that we have to make out. But, um, we're at the most aggressive point in our marketing plan that we have for this one this one particular property. The number of calls that I'm getting is just through the roof. It's it's hard to keep up with. It's hard to handle right now. So mm. um but it's it's for a good reason. So there's the thing I want I want to uh, touch on here. There's a very specific, very particular process that we'd like to put all of our buyers through. And that that goes right down to education when they initially call, making sure they understand that uh, they are buying a home. The only difference is they don't have their own loan. Um, And then the income requirements. So there are, just, just to give you an idea, there are loans today that someone is able to qualify with, um, with their debt to income ratio being only 43% for FHA and then select lenders will even approve buyers for loans with debt to income ratios of up to 50%. Just to put that in, into perspective, that means their total their their monthly payment that they're making out is 43% of their total monthly income. Now, to turn that on its head, so our system and processes, what we have, now we won't, we won't even entertain talking about a down payment with a buyer unless they make at least three times what the monthly cost of the property is. And basically what that means is their debt to income ratio is better than 33%. It's 33% or better. So our standards 
for basically underwriting these deals, our standards are even tougher than what you have to do with a bank. That's there's there's no mistake in that. That that's for a very particular reason. That way, when it comes to the end of the loan, the lender is going to say yes that the that the buyer that you the buyer make plenty of income to support the property. B they're going to see that you made a down payment initially, and that's and also that you made it in lump sums over the course of your agreement and. You've been taking in and living in the home just like it was your own. So why in their right mind would they not approve you for a loan? We like to make it that that simple and that much of a no-brainer for the lender when it comes time for the rent home buyer to get their own loan. And because of that process, we're seeing a lot of success. We're seeing a lot of our rent home buyers get their own loan. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you touched upon that because, I mean, the 43% debt to income is just madness, if, if, if you ask me. I mean, it's you're, you're, you're not setting anyone up to succeed in that situation. And then it, I, I just was thinking back to when you were knocking on pre-foreclosure doors. I mean, that's that's potential path you're going to go down. So you're dealing with, number one, a low down payment and then low income requirements. I mean, it's just not a recipe for success. I don't like that math. I mean, the way that we do it. And and by the way, just to uh, backtrack a little bit, what Nick was describing was our, his rent to own process. We have one that's identical, but that's the, that's the rent to own process when we're dealing with buyers who are, we're putting into our homes on our, on a rent to own basis. And, and maybe Nick, you could just dive in a little bit deeper as to you know what is rent to own and you know who is it for who do you work with and you know why is it a good option for 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 people who might have a little bit of of trouble qualifying for a bank loan today sure so it's for it's for all those all those buyers out there who just for one reason or the other cannot get a loan today uh, could be a myriad of reasons but uh they had a uh, death in their family a divorce is a big one, unfortunately. I mean, mm-hmm. we we help that. I'm sympathetic that people are going through that or empathetic that people are going through that situation in their lives, but we we help people that are going through that on both sides of the equation. I can just I can just just to give you a case study. So the property that we just accepted a buyer for. Uh, how how it works is as I've outlined, it requires a down payment anywhere from three to ten percent. Then, depending on what that is, we structure a plan totally around the buyer's payment schedule and when they're expecting bonuses or payments uh, to come in to increase their down payment over the course of their lease. And then by the end, as I said, it's a no-brainer, and the lender's able to approve them for their loan. Now going backwards, we just got a we just sold the property. The buyer moved in last week. This buyer is going through a divorce. He actually just finished going through a divorce. And his testimonial is on our website. So the listeners are welcome to check that out as well. It's prepropertysolutions.com and you can look for the buyer testimonial on there. But that was something I just got done crafting with him last week. The thing, Brian, that was um, the most useful for him or the most helpful for him was the fact that we're able to provide him with flexibility. Mm. He was coming from a situation where uh, his significant other at the time 
she came she came for money. She she came from a wealthy family. So everything they bought was cash. He never had to never had to worry about getting approved for his loan. So a big part of this purchase that he went through and he did a good down payment. He owns his own. He's self-employed, owns his own uh, company, makes plenty of money. Um, because of the divorce, however, his credit's less than perfect, less than what lenders like to see to approve for the loan. So he, his testimonial, I just want to touch on this. He, he's so happy to call someplace his own that he was able to do on his own and needed no one else's help. So he's, it's a proud moment for him. And, um, a lot of our buyers that are going through that. So self-employed is another portion. It's, uh, going through divorce or self-employed people that, or they moved to a new area and the lender needs to see two years of tax returns at that address, if it's a new state, uh, whatnot. So those are a number of different situations that we work with. Yeah. I don't know if I took that in the right direction that you wanted me to, Brian. No, you definitely did. I appreciate you describing that particular scenario because it touches upon a couple of, you know, a couple of different uh, reasons why you would use you would need rent to own. Unfortunately, you know, you're talking about a gentleman who's self-employed. You said he makes plenty of money. The income's there. The income's good. He had a life event, a divorce. You know, I mean, the divorce rate is high in the United States. Uh, it can really damage your credit. And, you know, the bank doesn't look at that story. They look at three digits. I mean, that's basically what you're saying. So they're looking at a three-digit number, a credit score, and saying, hey, you're, you're, you're not good enough, even though he is good enough. And he just needed a little bit of time and a little bit of help. You were able to provide that to him, give him, give him an opportunity, and he took advantage of that opportunity. And the end result is he cashed out on his loan. Now, roughly how long did it take for that particular buyer? And then a follow-up to that is, how long do you typically see buyers cash out on their loans if they do all the right things and follow the plan? So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna take that in a couple of different directions because mm -hmm. this buyer we just we literally just sold it on on a rent to own. So he just just moved into the home. So he just started the process. Got it. However, uh, just to give your listeners time a, a timeline here. So we had a buyer that came to us and as a science teacher made good made good income. He had been on the on the job for a number of years. I forget off the top of my head how many years, but he was in line. <clears throat> he was in line to get the principalship, to get get a promotion. That that comes with a significant pay raise. So it's important to mention that we didn't do all his income qualifications based off of what he was going to get in the future. If he got that, awesome but we can only do it off of what you're making today. So we got him in. He made enough to support the home. That was in September of 2019. I'm actually sad to say that he is, um, he's getting his own loan this week. He's closing on the property, getting his own loan. And I recently over the past few weeks, I reached out to him and said, look, you're one of, if not the best of our buyers. That we have right now. I wish I wish you would have stayed stayed in forever. I I love working with you. Mm. 
However, I'm happy for you that you're at the end here and you're you're able to get your own loan. So that was in less than two years time. Two years will be up in another couple months. So 20, 22 months that took. Uh, that's a that's a pretty standard buyer that we have. Um, yeah. That's less pretty than, pretty less standard. Than two years. Yeah, less than two yeah. years. I mean, or, or, or right around that time. Yeah. Yep. And the majority, the majority of the buyers that we're working with are able to get mortgage ready um, inside of two years. However, for some that are borderline two years, we we're open to extending longer, either 30 or 36 month lease, uh, because we never like to have the buyers feel like they're under the gun. Sure. Um, you know, you'll you'll uh you'll get plenty of time to be able to get your down payment up, to improve your credit, that kind of thing. And we'll set you up for success. You have a great plan uh, and you set your buyers up for success. You've, you've always done that, but you know, some, sometimes, you know, people are people, right? So not everyone follows the plan. Not everyone, not everyone will get there or maybe it'll take longer. So what are some of the things that your buyers really need to be aware of so that they can and be on with, you know, like stay, stay on the path, follow the plan so they can get to that, to that end goal of getting their own bank loan and uh, taking ownership of the house? So the number one thing I would say is staying enrolled in credit enhancement. So all of our contracts and all of our buyers, Brian, as I'm sure you're aware, they, the buyer accepting them, it's contingent upon them working and staying enrolled with my credit team for their, their credit repair and their credit enhancement. Mm-hmm. It's hard for us to help someone that doesn't enroll in credit, uh, credit repair or credit enhancement <clears throat> from the very beginning. So basically, they're, they're getting accepted. They're getting in the home. And then for three years, they're just winging it, trying to do it on their own and pay stuff off. And, oh, I I think I'm going to be here. And basically the strategy of crossing their fingers and hoping that at the end of the two or three years that they're able to get their own loan. Mm. That would be the number one thing that I see with people uh, that are not able to be successful is you have to you have to stay committed and enrolled in the entire process and the process doesn't end once you get into the home. That's frankly, to be candid with you, where the process starts. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. So, and credit repair, just for the listeners, I mean, you're looking at typically a six to nine month uh, period minimum. That's what uh, my credit team is going to recommend uh, for some, it's going to be longer. Um, Nick, yeah, I, and that's I, a cycle. I'm sorry to jump on that, but that's, that's a cycle. So, Depending on how bad your your whole profile is as a buyer, mm-hmm. or I say bad, but credit, you can always fix credit. That's never the problem. The things that we can't change is if you make enough money to support the home, and if you make enough or you have enough saved for the down payment from what you've already made. Those are the things that no one's going to, we're not going to be able to affect. You can always fix credit. What we found is that uh, Paul Ritter and my credit team will usually have one cycle at least. So as you mentioned, that's six to nine months. Yep. Then they have to wait a few months for the credit to catch up. And so reports correctly on all the different bureaus and everything like that. Then they'll decide if you need to enroll in another cycle. 
to get to a point where you're mortgage ready. It's important that uh, the buyers out there are doing everything that they require. So not only enrolling for one, but continuing the volley back and forth. Is that everything I need to do? Do you recommend anything else? Stay proactive. Um, Hmm. When they drop the ball and either don't enroll in credit repair at all, or only do it for one cycle and then think, all right, so I'm, I'm good if their cycle only lasted three to six months. All right, I'm good. I don't have to worry about it for another three years. That, that's not the right approach to take. This is why we have people like you on the show, Nick. I'm so glad that you talked about the cycle piece. Um, I, it's not something most people are aware of. I mean, I think that credit repair uh, to most of the world is uh, confusing and tricky to say the least. And it's just valuable insight that you were able to to talk about that number. And and the lesson here to the listeners is that it it can be fixed. You can, you can fix it. I mean, I had credit challenges when I was younger, my scores dropped way below 700, um, maybe in the low sixes and it was fixed. It took time, but you know, you can't, you can repair it. Uh, And that's i I'm so glad you brought that out up, Nick, valuable lesson. I just want to ask you one or two more questions here before we wrap up. And only one, only one. You only get one. Only one. All right. Well, maybe maybe I'll get a bonus question if I comment <laughs> on your your baby blue uh, microphone cover. That probably just earned me one. But um, <laughs> Nick, uh, we talk about Avatar uh, together in our community. I don't think everybody knows what it is, but essentially what it is, it's you know an ideal buyer, an ideal seller. You know, I have I have a lot of my buyers are have the similar characteristics. They're either self employed. Or I have a lot of uh, single moms, actually, uh, several, probably um, uh, 60 to 70% of our homes have sing- are single moms. Do you have uh, an avatar at, at pre-property solutions? I mean, I know you have several houses, but is there a, a specific you know, avatar, if you will, that you primarily work with? Something that's, something that's just kind of surfacing right now as where, as I mentioned, we just had a buyer move in to one of the houses that we accepted. Mm -hmm. So he just got done going through a divorce, completing all the, all the, uh, the fees and the nonsense that back and forth with the lawyers and everything like that. Uh, then this new property that we have, we have a buyer's meeting set up for Saturday, Mm -hmm. hoping to get, at least two more set up in addition to that. But we have one set up right now. She is a woman that's going through a similar situation. So her and her husband are separated. They're still figuring it out if they want to go through the full divorce, but they're, they're trying it now. They're separated and she needs a place for her and her three kids. Now she makes plenty of money. Uh, does does very well as a as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So it turns turns out that the teacher is one that um that keeps coming up for us. She does well in that job, makes good income, has money saved for the down payment. There are several different avenues. We didn't decide on a number, but there are several several different avenues that she can go through for the down payment. But because of the separation, she is just not able to get along today. So that's frankly that there are there are themes that keep coming up mm. um, with the buyers that I see. And unfortunately, it's the divorce or the separation um, 
it's also self-employed and also that that uh that metric that i mentioned not necessarily a metric but that that one key trait of being a teacher having that secure income that's another thing that keeps coming up yeah definitely i appreciate you sharing that you know and and these scenarios or these uh you know different for lack of a better word buckets that that people are falling into whether it's self-employed or divorced or um you know some credit challenges i mean it represents a large percent of of the buyer market out there i mean an overwhelming amount would would you not agree well yeah it's there's only even with the lending restrictions loosening a little bit it's still difficult to get your loans. So it's, I'd say roughly 20% of the market can, excuse me, walk into a bank and get a loan. So this is a bigger pool, excuse me, it's a bigger pool of buyers. Yeah, not, absolutely. Not, not to say they're all good. I'm not, I'm not saying that like mm -hmm. it's for our program. Yeah. I'm sure they're all wonderful people um, and they're all nice people, but they're not necessarily all good. That whole 80% for our programs our rental own programs. However, there's a large portion in that 80% that are a great candidate. And they've almost, and a common theme that I keep getting because I've done more than one of these testimonial calls. One of our, one of our internal things, Brian, is our um, metrics that we measured in, um, from one of our last offsites was we really got to get new testimonials and we got to get this dialed in. So the testimonial process that we created, uh, Sue, my assistant and I have created, has really been able to flush out what the number one thing is. And the number one, the number one thing is you gave me the opportunity. Yeah. You gave me the chance. I was ready to throw in the towel. I was ready to give up. And the only, the only thing that kept me going was you gave me the opportunity to do this, that this was a, a reasonable option for me to buy a home again. Yeah. It's interesting you said that. I was just listening to you. I was ready to give up. I'm just hearing your dad, your parents, you know, at the hospital, like you were ready to give up too many years ago. And, and you know, you, you were looking for an opportunity, a chance. So uh, it's just, it's interesting how that ties together to what you're doing, to what you're doing right now and, and out there changing lives, which is, which is great. That's why we do this. Um, Nick, I asked you your two questions, so I'm not going to borrow another. One. I'm going to ask you one more, but it's what haven't I asked you that uh, maybe you want to share with uh, with the listeners today? Brian, I really think you have um, you've asked me a lot of great questions. So there's nothing there's nothing that jumps out at me that I could say. Maybe maybe the one question is uh, did I did I wake up this morning and call you and did we color coordinate our shirts? Yeah. <laughs> Both wearing a red shirt. That's the one question I think that the listeners need to know. You know, we the answer is no. We did not speak before this interview. So, I mean, great minds, I suppose, or, or we're connected on, on some level. But, you know, I, I had a lot of different color shirts I could have worn today. And just something spoke to me and said red. It's like, it's got to be red. So, uh, Nick... Uh, how can how can people get in touch with you uh, if you want to leave your email or your website or I think you already dropped it once but you know how can someone get in touch with you if they want to uh, talk to you about buying a home potentially? So we're in the we're in a different market than you, Brian. We're in the Rhode Island, Eastern Connecticut, and Massachusetts markets. Mm -hmm. That's the area that we cover. So if you're a buyer in those areas that's looking 
to see if Rentone is an option for you and it might be a good fit, head to our website, prepropertysolutions.com. That's P-R-E, property with a Y, solutions with an S.com. Have a look at the video that we have right in the homepage that goes over exactly how our Rentone program works. If it is a good fit, make sure you get signed up to receive our new property updates. Then if you're a seller within those markets, Eastern Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts, or Rhode Island that would like more information on the options that we can provide to purchase your property, you can go to the same website. It's prepropertysolutions.com and make sure you fill up a fill up, fill out a contact us form and someone from our team will be in touch. Excellent. Excellent. Nick, um, I, I know you're a busy guy for sure. I know you are. Um, and I just appreciate you taking the time today out of your super busy schedule to to sit and talk with me and, and provide this uh, valuable information to the listeners. I, I know there's a ton of great nuggets in there. So thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm grateful. You're welcome, Brian. It was a lot of fun always to uh, spread the good word. That's right. That's what we're doing. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day and uh, we'll talk again soon, buddy. All righty. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of A Better Way with Real Estate Podcast. We would greatly appreciate if you left us a rating and review so we can continue to help you and others navigate the many hurdles of the home buying and selling process. Visit bkwpropertysolutions.com to learn more. And remember, there is a better way with real estate.